0: I'm Rupa Subramania. This is Tom Korski. This is Ken Drysdale. This is Dr. Eric Payne.
1: This is Dr. William Mackis. Hi, this is Shadow Davis from the Shadow at Night live stream, and you are listening to the Sean Newman Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, folks. Happy Monday. I uh, hope everybody had a great weekend. We got a little U7 hockey in, a little uh, outdoors Uh, It was a beautiful weekend here. I don't know about everybody else, but uh, certainly enjoyed it. Now, I want to let everybody know um, Sunday, next Sunday, is the cutoff or, well, is the first cutoff, I guess, for tickets to uh, SMP Presents, uh, Rural Urban Divide with Vance Crow, um, Quick Dick McDick, and Steve Barber. Um, So if you're interested in that show, the link is in the show notes. would love to see you there. Yes, it's a Sunday. That is not a typo. I know I've had a lot of people ask me about that. Uh, Vance is flying in for, from St. Louis for a, for a conference on Monday, Tuesday, and Quick Dick is in the area on Saturday. So uh, Sunday just became a logical date. I know it's uh, kind of an odd day because, you know, most people spend time with family and everything else. I get it. Um, but would love to see you there. And we got a short window to try and sell some tickets to it, so if you're interested, Please look in the show notes. Uh, share with your friends, uh, colleagues, etc. If there's any companies out there looking to uh, possibly buy a table, uh, shoot a uh, shoot me a text message. Would love to uh, um, try and get this place full as possible. And obviously, it's it's a quick turnaround, short notice, and Top it off a Sunday. Anyways, that's my sales pitch for you uh, this Monday morning. We got a great one on tap for you today. And before we get there, uh, let's talk about today's episode sponsors, Canadians for Truth, their nonprofit organization consisting of Canadians who believe in honesty, integrity, and principled leadership in government, as well as the Canadian Bill and Rights, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the Rule of Just Laws. They got their own show coming up with uh, Evia Chipeuk. You may uh, recall her interviewing Justin Trudeau um, uh, during the... Uh, commission on the emergencies act well uh jamie and theo are going to be on stage with her january 18th in calgary if you want more information just go to canadians for truth uh either um uh, their website dot uh, ca canadians for truth dot ca or their facebook page either way uh, you can get more info there and probably grab some tickets and and you know uh, i'm sure it'll be an entertaining night with those three on stage um Prophet River, uh, you know, uh, we were talking during the Christmas season that, um, you know, if you got a well, a one, they service all of Canada, right? So it doesn't matter where you're tuning in from. If you're sitting in Canada and uh, you you got a uh, a hunter or a sportsman in your life, gift cards. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in Ontario, right, or BC, or you get the point. Yukon um, gift cards for that. Uh, you know, like it's like me trying to figure out. You know, if I had, uh, I don't know, my wife's a volleyball player, so to put it into context, it's like. I don't know what she wants on the volleyball world, but a gift card, she can go figure it out for herself. And I think uh, that's a pretty cool option they have. All you got to do is go to uh, uh, ProfitRiver.com. I know, volleyball and, and firearms. Give me a break. Uh, ProfitRiver.com. They are the major retailer of firearms, optics, and accessories serving all of Canada. And uh, you can uh, uh, have a little bit of fun there with uh, your loved ones, and gift card, or maybe you're a hunter, avid sportsman, whatever, go take a look at what they got at uh, ProfitRiver.com Tyson and Tracy Mitchell, hey, I'm excited to announce uh, Michco Environmental back for 2023 their family owned business that has been providing professional vegetation management services for both Alberta and Saskatchewan in the oil field and industrial sector since 1998. Me and Tyson, we're, were talking over the holidays, and I look forward to sitting down with uh, with all these companies a bit more and uh, trying to iron out uh, maybe some creative ways to keep all of you engaged as we go along. And that's what Tyson and me got talking about. Because uh, obviously, um, you know, to, to sit and say the same um, kind of ad, song and dance uh, every uh, week for 52 weeks, I, I can uh, get how... Um, for some of you, it could be like, well, uh, is Sean going to say at least an F-bomb in this one and screw up a little bit so we can have a chuckle? And so we're going to work together here. I'm trying to do this with all the uh, the sponsors to try and, uh, you know, add a little creativity in, give a little more background, history, et cetera, and try and hit on some of their um, busy points or, or busy times, I should say, to help uh, um, inform all of you. And Mitchko, uh, certainly, um, I always lean back on my history with them. I, I worked for him uh, when I came out of college uh, for summer break, and they'll be, uh, you know, that's their busy time, and that'll be coming up sooner than we all think, kind of like the Alberta election. Hey, just saying. And did I mention uh, that Daniel Smith is coming on here in January? Uh, yeah, it's been confirmed. Anyways, Mitchko Co. is hiring, and if interested, uh, Uh, or you want to find out a little bit more what they do, mitchcocorp.ca, or give them a call, 780-214-4004. Charles Kloss and the team over at Windsor Plywood, builders of the podcast studio table. If I haven't said it, they are back in as well. Excited to uh, have the originator of the podcast studio uh, back in here because whether we're talking mantles, decks, windows, doors, or sheds, or maybe a podcast studio table, the team over at Windsor Plywood is the team uh, to go see about all your woodwork. Uh, Gartner Management, finally, is a Lloyd Minster based company specialized in all types of rental properties to help meet your needs, whether we're looking for a small office, uh, change of scenery. A new uh, boss above you. Well, I mean, at least a, a guy running the building. Either way, uh, Wade's been fantastic to deal with. He's got open spaces. Give him a call, 780-808-5025. Now, let's get on in that tail of the tape brought to you by Hancock Petroleum, who's also back in for 2023. For the past 80 years, they've been an industry leader in bulk fuels, lubricants, methyl and chemicals, delivering to your farm, commercial or oil field locations. For more information, visit them at Hancock Petroleum at dat.ca. <laughs> He's a former leader of the Libertarian Party of Canada. He's had a 30-year career as a firefighter and paramedic. I'm talking about Tim
0: Moen. So buckle up. Here we go. This is Tim Moen, and you're listening to the Sean Newman Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Tim Moen. So thank you, sir, for uh,
0: hopping on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: And now I was just saying to you before we started, um, your clue you wrote was was fantastic, and I, I assume we're going to get to that at some point. But uh, yeah. I'm going to start. Uh, I'm going to start you out back at the start because there's going to be sure. a lot of people, including myself, that you know. Um, I guess it's eight years ago now when you would have been running. I, I assume, and I've yeah. ran a few times since. I, but I just, <clears throat> you know. I, I didn't pay attention to a whole lot of politics. You know, if, uh, yeah. if your name was, uh, Wayne Grexie, everybody, when you walk on, everyone's like, ah, I got it. So maybe we could just start with a little bit of your background and, and we got, uh, we got plenty of time. So, sure, uh, sure. you know, we, we'll see where it goes.
0: Sure. Well, I mean, where do you want to start? I, I grew up on a farm in, uh, Northwestern Alberta up around, uh, uh, Grand Prairie in a little community called Teepee Creek, population 21, 16, when the Smiths were on vacation, um, <laughs> You know, I, I, I got into uh, my career very early. So at the age of 19, I started in emergency services uh, as, a, as a paramedic and uh, eventually became a firefighter paramedic, worked in um, Fort McMurray for, for about 15 years. And while I was there, um, you know, a number of things happened. Um, the Al- Alberta Health Services took over uh, emergency medical services. They took over ambulance services. It became a provincial thing. And that really kind of got got me started in politics. You know, I, you know, I'm I'm a libertarian, and at that time, I was a libertarian who who thought that any engagement in politics whatsoever was uh, antithetical to to liberty. It was just kind of encouraging the bastards. You know, in fact, I'd written an article explaining why voting was probably uh, not only useless but immoral. It was uh, it was something like inciting violence and uh you know inciting violence probably shouldn't be allowed and uh but you know at 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 that point when alberta health services was taking over ambulance services i i knew exactly what it would mean for my community it would mean we we were we'd be stripped of control and i mean here we were people that lived in the community uh, were raising kids in the community Wanted nothing but the best for the community, and we took our job very seriously, and we were very engaged in in um, the direction our service took, in what kind of protocols, equipment, um, policies we we uh, ha- implemented that would best serve our community, that affected us directly, affected our families directly, and and that kind of informed us, and and now that control would be stripped of us and and be put in some bureaucrats hands in Edmonton um, who didn't have our community's best interests at heart who had a mandate of centralizing um, services and and managing from a top-down kind of socialist uh, perspective I knew I knew this was going to be uh, disastrous for not only our community but for communities across the province and so you know we I, I was very outspoken about this you know I, I did yeah, I was a bit more of a firebrand back then and did more provocative things. I did a bunch of videos directly calling out uh, the medical directors of the, this new AHS Politburo and, and some of the directors. You know, I, I did things like put on a hammer and sickle shirt to, and described it as our new AHS uniforms. And uh, I, I got a lot of um, a lot of attention on me. I guess my videos kind of had a, a, a cult following among EMS personnel who were like, yeah, screw the man. Uh, But it also got the attention of the authorities who were trying to get me fired as well. At the time, we held a town hall. We alerted the public to what was going on. And, you know, we managed to hold on to our dispatch services at the time. They were going to take dispatch away from our, our fire department and move it across the province to Peace River at the time, which made absolutely no sense on any level. Uh it wasn't going to save any money for one thing because we still needed our dispatchers employed because they still needed to dispatch fire trucks. So um, you know, all it meant was they were going to be doing less work and and not dispatching ambulances. And we were going to be dealing with people who didn't know the area and didn't know the community and and trying to figure out where where to go based on these people. So uh we had a town hall and we managed to push back. We managed to hold on to our dispatch services, but of course AHS took over. Um Over our our ambulance services provincial wide, and it's kind of been a a, a shit show ever since. You know, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, But you know, eventually, you know, every firefighter has a side hustle, and my side hustle was um, was doing audio and and film production. And and you know, I made it my my mission at the time to offer my services to every environmentalist that was coming up from Hollywood wanting to make a documentary about how evil the oil sands were and how evil, um, you know, this community was. And, um, you know, I managed to get on um, uh, a documentary filming with with Neil Young and Daryl Hannah. And, you know, my, my goal here was to be friendly, to be welcoming, uh, and, and to ultimately shoot whatever they want. But, while I'm doing that, offer suggestions and and raise points that might offer some cognitive dissonance that might uh, influence their their opinion about my community and about the industry uh, that that is so vital to this world, really, um, and so on. So you know, I, I did some work with Neil Young, and of course, what when Neil Young came to town, we had a uh, a carnival in town called Sustainable. It was this eco-friendly carnival, run off the used cooking oil from the local restaurants. It had a solar-powered stage, and I suggested to Neil, Neil, why don't why don't we get a shot of you on this stage, singing to the residents of Fort McMurray, uh, powered by the sunshine, right? Because I think it would be very interesting to see this very environmental conscience consciousness uh, in the heart of dirty industrial oil company why is that why is there this environmental consciousness isn't that interesting just the juxtaposition ought to be you know artistically it, w- it would be amazing right and of course the subversive point there would be look you only get environmental consciousness in communities like Fort McMurray who care about the environment because they have enough uh, wealth have built up enough wealth to to care about these things and in fact the, the year before Uh, we had banned plastic bags. I think we were one of the first communities in Canada to ban plastic bags, which was dumb, but, um, it, it just goes to show you what, what people up there were thinking about. They were like, you know, they care about their community, they care about their environment. And, and, and of course, um, you know, they care about any pollutants that are coming from their neighbors, you know, the oil sands. And so that's why we have different regulations and different. So I thought this would be interesting course Neil didn't want to have anything to do with it um, you know he went out to the reservations and you know one one uh, First Nations lady contacted me and said you know I, I was really kind of disgusted with Neil's visit because we wanted to show him all the, the stuff we were doing but he, he seemed to be only interesting in find, finding dead and dying Indians and um, and he wasn't interested really in our culture and, and seeing what our community offered and seeing how we flirt, we're flourishing because of the industry next to us. So, so, uh, you know, Neil then went on to, uh, Washington DC the next week and he slagged my community. He, he described it as Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, he said, we're basically committing genocide and all these things. Right. And so that pissed me off. I wrote an article, um, that, that described Neil's kind of hypocrisy, right? And 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 the article outlined, um, outlined you know. So Neil had a uh, had his 33 year old son with him on this trip. He the, the the documentary was basically Neil Young driving this hybrid piece of American badassery across North America. It was a Lincoln Continental, 1960 uh, something Lincoln Continental that he had spent like a million dollars out outfitting into this um this hybrid vehicle that burned only the cleanest ethanol from one plant in the states which he had to of course get trucked to him but on diesel burning trucks wherever he drove so he could drive clean he had a big entourage <laughs> a big you know he towed this car mostly behind uh, a diesel burning did he bus. not
1: find did he not find any of that <laughs> he, remotely like did his brain just shut off
0: to uh, all of that his brain was shut you know i'll tell you um what what I found working with Neil is that these people are highly insulated from reality. They have people around them that are just complete yes men. I mean, their jobs depend on on stroking these guys' egos and saying everything they do is right. And yes, Neil, that fart smells delicious. Um, you know, like I remember when he got off the plane in in Fort Mac, he was checking into the hotel out at the airport and we had kind of had our initial meeting, and we were standing outside and he's like, he's sniffing the air, he's like, do you smell that do you smell that i'm like uh i smell pine trees he's like no no i i, I smell i smell the oil sands it's, and the wind was blowing the wrong direction it was it was coming from the opposite direction of the oil sand it, i'm like no that's not the noise he's like no i smell it i smell death and dying and uh his his right hand man his security's like yeah neil i smell it too yeah it smells horrific i'm like what are these people on they, they, they literally live in an alternate reality from you know and and so um yeah I mean he, he, he they're hypocrites they don't they don't even recognize their own hypocrisy or maybe they think that they're they're doing the best you know my my whole point was look the people in Fort Mac are doing exactly what Neil Young's doing. I mean Neil Young here to his credit he's putting all his energy and and time and, and investment into this Green technology uh, into trying to make the world a little bit better. Great, recognize that Fort McMurray is doing exactly the same thing. Yeah, you Neil, you have a, a pretty big carbon emission, but eventually maybe your technology will take off, and and over time there'll be less carbon emissions, and and you know we'll all be better off for it. Well, guess what? Same things happening in Fort Mac. Things are getting more efficient all the time. All these solutions are coming out of Fort McMurray this carnival sustainable. There, there was a ton of other things, you know, tailings reclamation, um, restoring well, the
1: where, land to its. Well, it's where the industry is, where industry right. is. You get all these brilliant people who pop up, who, great right. clever solutions yeah to problems we i mean do. in
0: fact in fact there were there were these modules um out at the landfill that that a company was working on that that harnessed the methane gas uh they were they're basically outfitted sea cans turned into greenhouses that would work in minus 40 weather that would produce a lot of food by harvesting the methane gas from landfills and the idea was that these sea cans would be able to be put in in northern climates where they don't get a lot of growing uh season and and they'd be able to feed communities and all these things are happening in fort mcmurray solar power everywhere all this stuff and and of course uh, you know so you know look yes we're we're emitting a lot of co2 but it's you could see where this is trending there's less and less co2 uh for each energy unit produced over time and Neil Young you're doing the same thing you're you're producing a lot of co2 in this <laughs> traveling carnival you've got this diesel burning bus you're shipping this clean fuel but with diesel burning vehicles well it's uh,
1: it's, it's it's ridiculous tim yeah absolutely i mean you know yeah. if 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 you want to fix things fix your own backyard right don't right. go traveling it, across the world on a big show uh, and right. bring everything with you to point the finger at somebody else in you know, uh, I would say uh, all the industry leaders, you know, we're the, the, the cleanest, most advanced in this world, you know, on the planet. Everybody wants our technology, what we're doing. They want our minds because we fight, face the stiffest regulations under the sun.
0: Right, right. And, and so here, so I, in this article, I was basically writing. And, and so Neil Young had his son on this bus, his 33-year-old son. He had cystic fibrosis, you know. His life expectancy was about 16 years or something like that, but uh, Neil Young was able to provide for him around-the-clock nursing care, all the best medical technology, to the point where his son was living a flourishing life, following his dad on this amazing trip across North America. And you know, I pointed out in the article that that Neil is undermining the very thing that is keeping his son alive. I mean, his his son's yeah. health and longevity could be linked in a causal chain back to the the dirty smokestacks of the industrial revolution allowing for people to be far more productive allowing for people to be able to make millions of dollars uh, making noise making sounds with their instrument and their their vocal cords and and you know all that is because of the enormous production productivity and human flourishing that and health and and increased sanitation and protection from the climate all these things that the industrial revolution and energy um particularly fossil fuels have provided and so here neil is it seemed to me undercutting the very thing that was keeping his son alive which i i felt uh, was ridiculous so i wrote this article um Kind of outlining Neil's hypocrisy, and you know, it was—I I thought it was fairly well balanced, and and it was, you know, complimentary where it needed to be, and and critical where it needed to be, and uh, it got picked up by the Huffington Post of all places, and uh, they asked to 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 publish the article, and and I'm like, well, sure, if you're gonna, I can't believe the Huffington Post is picking this up, but by all means. You you people are probably the ones that need to hear this more than anyone. Um, anyways, the the article went viral, and um, so pretty soon I was getting all this media attention. Sun News at the time and Ezra Levant were uh, had me on, and a bunch of different other uh, other places. So so I, I gained all this attention all of a sudden, and and um, some folks from the political realm noticed that hey, this guy's pretty well spoken. He can communicate well. He's seems to have very kind of a robust argument for the, for free market and, and, uh, fossil fuels and all these things. And, um, not
1: to have your hair and, uh, you're not missing six teeth. Right. right. All those fair,
0: fair enough, fair enough. So, (laughs) um, so, yeah, so, so, you know, I started being kind of headhunted by political parties and, and, you know, the libertarians were really reaching out to me. You know, the Libertarian Party has been around since the early 70s, around 73. And, you know, I'm a Libertarian, so I, I subscribe to them. But I, I pointed out to them, I said, look, I said, I'll refer you to this article I wrote before about why engaging in political action and voting is is probably immoral. And, uh, it, you know, I'm I'm not getting involved in politics. Forget about it. Screw off. But they kept coming back at me and they kept making arguments like, uh, you know, the argument I ultimately couldn't refute was that, um, you know, one of my heroes is, is is a politician named Ron Paul from the U.S. And Ron Paul was a Republican, but he was a hardcore libertarian as well. He, in fact, he had ran uh, as a presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. Uh, and then he he ran in the primaries for the Republican Party a couple of times. Um, and I mean, he stood up on that stage and said stuff like we ought to end all the wars, bring all the troops home. Our, you know, uh, our army is for defending our borders and de- defending our nation, not and not engaging in imperialism and nation building and and increasing terrorism and doing all these things. And and he pointed out that 9/11 is blowback for American fo- foreign policy, and that had we just minded our own business, you know, different things like that, stuff that a Republican at the time wouldn't dare dare speak out, right? And and he would he would even say to, you know, uh, Republican article audiences in, in like, uh, the Bible belt in, in the Southern states, um, that, that yeah, drugs ought to be legalized. We ought to end the drug war. Now, how many of you here, raise your hands, um, would, would do heroin if it was legal. And, and he he was winning audiences over with, with this radical message. And he talked about ending the federal reserve and, and all the evils. So Dr. Paul uh, you know, even though he, he didn't win, um, you know, he was a congressman for years and, and he was very principled and and would just said very unpopular things as a congressman, but true things, things that needed to be said. Now he didn't get any of his political agenda advanced. He didn't become president. He didn't end the federal reserve. He didn't get the troops home. He didn't, you know, the drug war didn't end. He didn't end taxation. None of these things, um, ended because of his political act but what did happen was he reached millions and millions of people with this message of liberty and um, I couldn't deny that and they said Tim look you, you are out there you've got a blog you you appear on podcasts seems to me you're trying to get this message out there you think that's important you think that maybe changing culture and and promoting these ideas is important well what better thing to do than stand on a stage where there's a spotlight where there's an audience who are who are captive and wanting to hear your message. Why wouldn't you stand on that stage and deliver that message? Yeah. You're not going to win your, an election. You're not going to, you're not going to become prime minister, but look, at least you could do is, is stand up on that stage and deliver the message. And and we think you're a good communicator. So why don't you do that? And I couldn't argue with that because I believe Dr. Paul was a force for good in the world. And he, he got a message out there saying very unpopular, but true things. Um, and yeah, he, his, his, you know the politics he didn't get things done, but I mean no no politician does really you know they they maintain status quo and and grow the state a little bit at best, but they they send a message to the people so so I said, okay, in twenty fifteen I will run for parliament that gives me about a year and a half to figure this out to figure out exactly how to do to start making some connections and start building up networks and different things. well, two days after I made this commitment, my uh member of parliament who was Brian Jean at the time, uh stepped down, resigned, and we and there was a pending by-election. And so within two days, I found myself running um for, for member of parliament in a by-election. And and you know, I had no idea what I was doing at all. You know, I, I reached out to a few people to see if anyone could help me. And you know, a guy came uh, from Ontario to be my campaign manager he said he, he was a poker player and he, he heard that the poker tables in Fort Mac were pretty hot and he was going to fleece some oil men from of their their earnings at while at, at night while running my campaign during the day so uh, that so he helped me out and and you know i just I had this kid and, and this other kid uh, turns out it was a kid i didn't know it at the time he's like 15 year old helping me make memes which were kind of a new thing in 2014 and we just threw a bunch, a bunch of memes out there, and, and the one that really stuck was, um, "I want gay married couples to be able to protect their marijuana plants with guns," and uh, that that got put around the world. Uh, you know, Fox News had me on, CNN did a story about it. This hour is twenty two minutes. Uh, did a p- a bit making fun of it, and um, and so I was getting all this attention out of nowhere again. Just you know, things seem to be. All, all the spotlight seemed to be po- pointing on at me. And and again, without any kind of intention of um, uh, never wanting to ever have been involved in politics, I pretty soon found myself uh, on this political stage with all this attention. And our party convention just happened to be coming up uh, in a month. I was nominated for leader and, and won almost unanimously. Uh, and so I went from, you know, Talking about how voting is immoral to running for prime minister in very short order, so it was kind of a surreal turn of events. So, um, you know, in 2015 uh, was the general election, and I I cashed in my retirement savings, my LAPP, which probably wasn't a very smart uh, financial move by any stretch, but uh, work wouldn't give me a leave of absence, so you know, I was in a, 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 an acting but yeah an acting battalion chief in in Fort Mac, which is about as high as you can go on the on the floor side, and um, so I basically killed my career, uh, cashed in my pension, and, and gave it my best shot in 2015. And we had our, our best year in uh, in the party history, which isn't saying a lot, but I, I mean it felt pretty good knowing how many people, how how much we got the word out there, and and it gave us it gave us an opportunity to kind of change the political climate because uh, shortly after uh, when Stephen Harper stepped down. Um, and we saw Max Bernier uh, saying some vaguely libertarian things in um, in Parliament. We thought, well, this is the guy that should be leading the Conservative Party. We should have at least a, a, a somewhat libertarian guy as, as leader of the Conservative Party, um, because then it'll make our radical message uh, seem far less radical. You know, we'll we'll be because this is what happens all the time, right, Sean? You have it's not Trudeau that's that's really driving this progressive agenda it's all the radicals to the left of him that are doing that it's the green party the ndp and the the radicals in in um the media and institution that are that are shifting the overton window to the left and making trudeau look like a moderate when with his policies well we needed something like that pulling the overton window the other way uh saying hey uh you know we say end the income tax well now it looks like a modern, you know, if we're on that that national debate scene, we need to end the income tax. We need to, um, you know, end the Federal Reserve or, or end the Bank of Canada, all these different things. When Max Bernier stands on that stage and says, hey, maybe we should have a 10% flat tax. Doesn't that sound better? Hey, maybe we should audit uh, the Bank of Canada and, and put some uh, uh, spotlight on it. Suddenly those positions... Seem like middle of the road positions, whereas right now they seem like like extremist positions. So our idea was to get Max Bernier as leader of the of the Conservative Party when Harper stepped down. So we flew Max out to um, to Calgary. We we connected him with um, a bunch of uh, influencers and and uh, bigwigs and money, and wanted to show him that he'd have all sorts of support from Western Canada if he threw his name in the in the hat. We started a campaign called Draft Bernier. And yeah, shortly after we flew him to Calgary and, and assured him of all the support, he threw his name in the ring and almost won, almost won. Uh, but out of that came the PPC, which has, you know, Max has given Max a platform to to promote somewhat libertarian ideas. I mean, he, he, he was doing the best job um, out of all the po- politicians out there pushing back against the COVID regime and, you know. We like to take some credit for that because we kind of paved the way for this libertarian, these libertarian ideas to get out there, show that they could be popular, show that, that um, you know, you could get some support behind it. So that, that was kind of... Um, you know that that's kind of my political history in a nutshell. Now, you know the the downside of it was that the PPC took a lot of wind out of the libertarian sales. A lot of people that normally would have supported our party kind of went over to the PPC because of how charismatic and and popular Max was and all that the stuff he was doing. And of course, I couldn't match that. I had bills to pay. I have I have to. I was back at work trying to rebuild that pension. I was in a career politician with a. Uh, with a secured pension or anything like that so so i you know i stepped down as leader a couple of years ago but in that time i've also you know kept my foot in the in the game you know when the the branch COVIDians started threatening a lot of my colleagues with these uh, vax mandates and a bunch of them were threatening to lose their job um i got together with a few people started a, an organization called fight for the Frontline. uh you i think you had kate king on she was part of that mm-hmm. and um you know we we launched a constitutional challenge with derek from and and uh put enough pressure raised enough public awareness that we eventually got you know in conjunction with some of the other organizations working in parallel and activists we put enough pressure on the political government to get them to back down and get all the healthcare care workers back and and my firefighter colleagues back so that's kind of what i've been up to lately
1: well that's that's a lot now yeah uh, I'm going to try and slow you down a second. Yeah, you, yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm I'm rattling off questions, but I wanted to let you finish. So here, let's start Sorry, here. You say voting is immoral. Right. Can you expand on that? I'm just curious. You said very early on you wrote a whole thing about it, and then you get right. wrapped up into politics. I'm curious. Why is voting immoral?
0: Well, it's kind of like inciting violence, right? Because most people who who are voting are asking the government to do something. They're asking them to impose something, right? Some policy. All these policies are backed by lethal force. I mean, all you have to do is disobey any government policy and defend yourself from the enforcers that come to enforce that policy, and you'll and you'll get guns drawn on you. If you fight back and draw your gun back, I mean, you'll get shot down. Right. And so all, all government, you know, government is a monopoly on violence, and and that's its mandate. And so when you when you say things like, uh, you know, we, we need to uh, or you need to pay your taxes. OK, well, what happens if I don't? Well, I get a bunch of threatening letters in the mail. They might garnish my wage. If I hide my money, um, you know, they'll, they'll eventually try to come take it. They'll 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 try to restrict my freedom in all sorts of ways. And if I fight back, if I say, no, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and be free anyways, you know, um, th- they'll keep escalating force until they get compliance. I mean, laws are not uh, suggestions. They're mandatory precisely because they're backed by lethal force. And so so to me, anytime you're you're asking the government to do something on your behalf, you're kind of encouraging them or inciting them to do violence. Mm. And, and voting, you know, unless you're voting libertarian, I guess, is at least this is how I looked at it back then. I still look at it this way a little bit, but I, I can also make a case for... Voting in self-defense, right? I mean, if, if you're face facing a socialist regime like the NDP, and it looks like they're going to sweep the vote, I mean, maybe picking the lesser evil is is defending yourself against a, a greater evil. So, so I, you know, I have more sympathy for voting uh, nowadays, but uh, that's kind of how I looked at it back then.
1: Would you have suggestions on what to do otherwise of voting then?
0: Well, look, I I think that um, huh, I, I think that Breitbart was right when he said that politics is downstream from culture, or government is downstream from culture. In other words, um, what, what was what was the quote by H.L. Mencken? He said, "Democracy is the idea that the common man knows what he wants and gets it, good and hard." And um, you know, the, the reason we have Let's say uh, government-run healthcare in in this country isn't because Trudeau says we sh- should have it. It's because my neighbor says we should have it. Uh, you know, most Canadians say, "Yeah, this is something I want," and government follows market demand. Now, government has a you know plays a role in promoting these ideas, but ultimately, if the population didn't want something, it wouldn't happen. Uh, if they if they didn't want it strong enough, let's say. It, it wouldn't happen. And so to me, politics is downstream he- from culture. And, and so the most important thing we can do is uh, is shift culture. And shifting culture requires persuading people, engaging with them, um, and, and getting good at influencing people. Um, and and in, in a lot of ways, engaging in politics is almost antithetical to that because you your job when you're running as a candidate, if you're serious about it and you want to get votes and you want to attain that seat, is you have to reflect and even amplify culture. You have to foment a little bit of fear. You have to talk about how you're going to be the solution to the problem. And that that is, you know, the exact opposite of what we need. We need to explain to people um, why their ideas are wrong, why this culture is wrong, why, uh, you know, and, and those doing that kind of thing isn't likely to get you elected, but that's what's required if we expect a market that demands a smaller government. And, and so you, you know, as soon as you get, a, like, I was under no illusions. If, if I were to become you know, through some fluke, uh, elected to as prime minister, I was under no delusions that I would actually be able to do anything. I mean, politicians are chained down by the Overton window, which is, which is uh, culture and all the institutions and, and the, you know, the entrenched bureaucrats, those things all, um, all dramatically restrain what you can actually do when you get elected. And quite often, uh, the things you say to get elected are putting on chain, are essentially you putting on your own chains and creating your own constraints, uh, when you actually get into office. Um, and, and so it's a very difficult role. Now, that being said, obviously we need politicians, you, you know, to get ahead of the parade we create to fill that gap. Um, you know, I'd rather have a libertarian politician who is having to, you know, like I I prefer to have Daniel Smith in there, even though, yeah, in order to be pragmatic, she has to spend a lot of money and and increase the debt and, you know, engage in all these public fund funding of infrastructure and arenas and different things like that. I know she's a libertarian and I know she, she, you know, um, Wants the same things I do, but is constrained by the realities and the pragmatism so, of politics. So, so,
1: is that why I'm just gonna um, get a thought out of my brain and let you tackle it? Is is that why then, um, maybe right now with the liberal government in and, and the NDP propping, and the fact that media is funded by the government? Sure. And institutions lean heavily to the left, and we have all these rules coming down that we, you know, it feels like the Overton window, to use your terms, is being pushed hard right now. Like, I mean, everything yeah. everything that goes against what they're talking about, silence, because they have control right. over so much. And it, it's, it's, you know, normally I'd say a politician is hamstrung. Like, I get what everything you're saying, but right now in this country, it feels completely opposite. It feels like they have been able to just continue to march down their um, their agenda and continue to just force it and not right. have any backlash.
0: Well, because this is something the left has always understood, right? Is that propaganda and um, is important because it influences culture, and culture is what allows you to influ- impose your mandate, and and so that's what they're doing. We don't have the same same type of understanding or uh, drive on on the other side of things, on the liberty side, let's say. Um, And, yeah, I mean, you know, and you see this over and over again, and this is why, you know, Michael Malice said, um, you know, conservatives are just progressives driving the speed limit. You know, the Conservative Party is considered conservative because it has the same policies the Liberals did 10 years ago, right? Um, And in 10 years from now, what the status quo is now is what the conservatives will be fighting for right and and so uh, you know they're they're either impotent or complicit in in creating this but but either way they're they're powerless to kind of stop the the march forward and and so it's it's up to people I think who aren't um, trying, at all costs to get elected. And, and, you know, this is a thing that, that happens and we see this over and over again with the conservative party. And this is my worry, for example, with the PPC is that, you know, if, if they water down the message enough that they start getting support. Right. And, and we know that let, let's, let's assume Max is a libertarian for a second. I have no reason to believe that he's not really. I, I mean, um, you know, I, I know some people inside the campaign that worked long and hard on a, uh, uh, drug legalization policy, for example, that he could have easily promoted, or a marijuana one. It was a very mediocre one. Now he refused to do that. Why did he refuse to do that? Well, because it probably wouldn't be popular with his base, right? So even though he might want to to advance this agenda, he knows that he's going to lose a bunch of support if he tries to. And and you know, down the line, you you could see where he softens the message of libertarianism to try and. Gain more support now i think this is a mistake because let's say he starts gaining a lot of popularity let's say that they take enough of the conservative vote that the that the the right wing is fractured like it it was in the in the 90s when the reform party emerged and and you now have this divide well what's going to happen with conservatives when they see that the left is dominating because they can't unite the vote Uh, there's going to be a big push to reunite the parties, right? And so if if Max wants to become prime minister someday, he's going to have to unite the conservatives under this uh, more status quo message. Because if he continues with even the message he has now, uh, it's going to turn off a lot of people that would otherwise vote for him. So so the system system itself promotes, um, you know, if you want that seat, you have to, uh, y- you can't go against the status quo.
1: But they won't even let him go against the status quo, to, right. uh, Tim. Like he had, yeah. like think about Mac's last election. He sure. literally had enough, pr- he was higher than the Greens. Um, You had a guy on stage at the leaders uh, debate that publicly states, I don't want to be prime minister. That That's Quebec.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, yeah.
1: I, I, I sit here and I go like, you know, we sit here and say, you have to do this. You have to do that. It's like, No, the system enforces that. I'm not so sure it's what the people want. I would like to hear Max get up on the stage and say whatever the hell he wants to say. And if he's got enough of the popular vote, which he did at the time, to be there, but they didn't put him on stage. So how is he going to gain more recognition when the most, um, well, I mean, that's where people went to watch the leaders debate. They don't allow him on. Yeah. Now, and and once again, I would use this for you too, right? If yeah. the Libertarian Party was higher than the Greens, why have the Greens on the stage? Right. Because because they're fixing it. Right. That's the way my eyes look.
0: Yeah. Well. Yeah. I, I agree. And and you know, I think that uh, Max is. Um, challenging the narrative enough that they, they don't want any any part of that on on that stage so the establishment is fighting back I mean there's there's just too many powerful interests uh interested in stopping that right and and this is my point my point though is that look you you are either like from my perspective um, I, I would prefer Max have taken my offer I mean right after he lost to um, to Andrew shear in in the leadership race for the CPC, I reached out to him and, and did a public video and said, hey, I'll step down as leader of the Libertarian Party if you want to actually um, you know, have a group of people that, that will support your policies. Uh, and in fact, if you don't, I'll take your policies and I'll run against the conservatives on them in the next election. And And how are you like that? So, you know, we talked over the years and he kind of hummed and hawed and was kind of hoping he could get somewhere with the CPC. And eventually, he started his own party, which was kind of a, a head scratcher to me. Um, but I think, you know, the reason he did it was that he could get more popular support if he were to take a populist message that, uh, and, you know, uh, and and kind of water down the libertarian message, not be so radical. But, but my, I would prefer to see a radical max. Like, yeah, max, come out. Income taxes, theft, goddammit. Just say it on stage. The drug war ought to end. No one should be able to tell me what I can I can't put into my body. You know this. Say this on stage. The central bank ought to end. Say it. Say we ought to end all foreign excursions. Bring all the Canadian troops home and say, no more peacekeeping, no more excursions. Defend our borders. That's it. That's what the, 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 uh, the, you know, the military is there to do. It's to defend Canadians, not special interests overseas. And, um, you know, that, that would have been something special. Now he, he would have, wouldn't have got many, you know, he, he definitely would not have been prime minister. Um, but he, he would have ignited, um, he would have ignited the minds of Canadians. I think if he did that and, and, you know, like, if you're going to put up libertarian numbers in an election, you might as well go all in on on the radical libertarian stuff, rather than this other stuff, right? So, uh, you know, I guess that's my perspective on it. But,
1: well, but I don't know.
0: Maybe maybe I, he's doing I, I'm the right just, hey, kind of,
1: Tim, I'm just a Tim. I'm just a guy from the middle of nowhere yeah. who has a podcast, you know. And, and I just look at, it I, I just I would just love to hear the thoughts, right? Yeah. And then if you're going to say something that's radical, well, why? Yeah. And then I would love to hear that explained because I'd like to become what I believe is an informed voter. I, I think a lot of us and when you control it, so you actually don't get to see who's actually out there and how popular they've become. Well, that's fixing the election. I mean, it's, it's just right. so blatant in front of yeah. me. I'm just like, this is, this makes zero sense. I mean, literally, I can't even think of his name right now. I'm choking on rage a little bit here. Uh, the, the leader of the, <laughs> the, the, the block literally says on stage, I don't even want to be prime minister. It's like, yeah. it's a mockery of a national debate. And I'm not making, I, it's up to him to say that. I'm happy he said it. But I mean, why even have him there? Other than you understand that, you know, there's a large population that lives in Quebec and, you know, they, they obviously have their big place in Canada. And here we sit in Alberta. I mean, it's just, it's interesting for me being a uh, A newbie to politics and certainly doing a deep dive over the last year since, you know, um, uh, interviewing a whole bunch of the UCP here in Alberta and everything else and being on stage with them and everybody think I'm a political junkie, which I'm not. I'm just just a guy who cares just like everybody else in the last couple of years have really shone the spotlight on a lot of things where you're like, holy crap, what is going on? And it's hard. It's easy for people to get, including myself, to go down a little bit of a conspiracy rabbit hole when you start staring at like, what are we doing? Like, yeah. if if Trudeau can't win or the Conservatives can't win because PPC get up there and everybody loves them, I mean, to me, that's where I'm like, well, that's what people want. I want to, I want open and transparent. But it doesn't feel like that. Right. And I probably sound like a little bit of a, uh, I'm off in Never Never Land when it comes to the political sphere. But that's that's well, I, I mean, I
0: think most Canadians think like that, right? They're just like, yeah, let's just have open, honest uh, communication and debate. You know, part of the problem is though, that, that we're surrounded by this matrix of, of propaganda and, you know, you don't need to, uh, you don't need to, uh, you know, it's even scarier from my perspective that it's probably not puppet master somewhere controlling the strings. It's, this is probably just an emergent property of the system we have. So for example, you just have to look at, at local Elections or local politicians, right? Uh, you know, you live in your community. You you see a real need in your community, a change for a change. Maybe potholes need to be fixed. Maybe maybe you have a big idea about how emergency services should be run in your community. You get elected on that platform, and you try to implement your policy. What do you run up against? You run up against the the CAOs and the CFOs and the the directors that have worked in that municipality for years, explaining to you exactly why this is a naive and wrong-headed way to go and how that'll never work and how this unintended consequence and that unintended consequence will be the result. And who are you to argue, right? I mean, these guys are the experts. This is, you could call them the deep state or the entrenched bureaucracy, whatever you want to call them. They're just guys that have done the job and can see the problems with your pie in the sky ideas. And so you know that this is one of the reasons why prom, you know campaign promises generally never come to fruition because they meet the hard cold reality of of the entrenched bureaucrats and you know if you if you do get anywhere eventually one of these bureaucrats is going to uh, to to go to the public vis-a-vis maybe the the corporate media or legacy media and explain how dangerous this policy is and what it'll mean for constituents if if it's implemented and so, um, you know, the, 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 system itself rigs, um, is rigged against the people. And, and of course it is. I mean, um, you know, governments aren't, you know, there's this, I, I think this myth out there that governments kind of emerge from this, uh, amazing process of people coming together and, and deciding what's right and deciding self-government and creating a, no, it's, governments are almost always born in, in plunder and conquest and, they, they, that's kind of their job and that's what they continue doing um and, and you know you can't take a group of people who use violence to to you know i mean they they're essentially like the crips and the bloods it's like this is our territory that's your territory don't cross this line that's where the border will be um we're going to we're going to provide protection and and shake down people for protection money on this side you you do run your scam on the other side we can't expect that group of individuals to be for the people or by the people or something like that. So, you know, I, I just don't see how we, we um, uh, how, how we can expect, I guess, the system to work for us. It never has and, and it never will. And so I think we have to operate outside the system, uh, around the system in, in the gaps that the system leaves and uh and i think that that's where the real change happens anyways i mean we see it over and over again in in history i mean slavery was ended in most of the world peacefully it was only in the states that they went uh they had a civil war about it but it was through the spreading of ideas and abolition radical abolitionists going against the the common um you know ingrained culture at the time that did it It was a small group of people that were just uh principled and steadfast that that changed it uh same thing you know, Soviet Union. I mean, um, we saw that change very rapidly um, when these giant systems of control and authoritarianism crumbled under their own weight. And you know, I think I think there's there's room for optimism, but I don't think the optimism is going to come from getting our one true uh, desired leader in that office, and then change is going to come. No, I think it's it's a lot harder and more complex uh, than that. But also. Um, in some ways easier than that because, uh, it requires us to take personal responsibility for what's going on and try to shift culture in whatever way is available to us.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on parts in there. Um, certainly you can't expect somebody to get in to, uh, be leader, take Danielle Smith and expect her to be the knight in shining armor and everything's going to go away because if public opinion uh, goes against her. I mean, it's it's a, you know, it's a, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here this morning, folks? It's a popularity contest. So if she gets voted right. out in May, she could have been rah-rah about all these things, but if she doesn't listen, uh, so I, I, I get it. You, you have to educate yourself. You have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your community to help support the people who get in office to do the right things and then have the support when certainly uh, the,
0: the, the hailstorm falls on them, et cetera. Um, Right. Right. And, and just to go on that example, you know, right now in Alberta, we have an opportunity. I know Daniel Smith would probably love to decentralize ambulance services again to, to kick them back to the municipality, while she's constrained by a number of things, one of those being public opinion and, and entrenched bureaucrats don't want it. I mean, mayors and council and municipalities don't want to take that back on. I mean, the province is providing it for free. Why would they want that cost and responsibility on themselves? Now, so Daniel Smith is constrained here. But, you know, I've, I've been kind of banging my head against the wall trying to convince our union that what we need to do is create a movement of people that want to see this decentralized. And it's very easy to do. We did it with the vaccine mandates. Uh, you know, you, you Get people rallied together. You you appear on all the media you can. You create a unified message of decentralizing, and pretty soon you you shift the political landscape to the point where now Daniel Smith can do what she wants, but she can't do that without us taking personal responsibility for, for paving the way for her.
1: Hmm. That's an that's an interesting um, thought because uh, you know I think on this side. Anytime you centralize all the power, I mean, we just we just literally felt how that felt. That sucked. I mean, we've been living that for you know, and um, being out in one of the rural parts of Alberta, uh, certainly there's been the stories. You know, you you, you brought up Kate King, um, but there's been others who have talked about uh, issues with not only hospitals but uh, paramedics, ambulances. And, um, a whole bunch of that. And it comes back to a lot of the centralization or the bureaucracy that's been formed from the, the top down, uh, approach. And although there might've been once upon a time, uh, a carrot there that was, that seemed really good. Now it, it, it seems like it's completely opposite. I feel like you'd, you'd have a lot of, uh, support for what you're saying. I feel like there's a ton of people maybe already, um, working on it and right. to hear you you talk about it, Tim they'll be like, yes, that makes a lot of sense. That's me at least.
0: Well, no, I think you're right. I I mean, I think it it needs to be a little bit organized and, and, um, you, I mean, you need to understand what the enemy is going to come back with, right? I mean, they're going to come back with, well, people, you know, in underserved communities aren't going to have, uh, services, uh, you know, there's going to be a difference in, in protocols and equipment and, um, you know, they'll go down the list and explain how this is going to put people's lives in jeopardy. So you have to be ready for those things. But I mean, right now, the system is an absolute gong show. It's, you know, at one time, there was something like 60% of uh, full time paramedics in um, Edmonton were off on stress leave. You know, they're getting paid to stay home rather than uh, be out there. And, and this puts an incredible strain on the system. And why were they off on stress leave? Well, it wasn't because they were seeing dead people or overwhelmed by COVID, it was because the COVID regime makes working an absolute nightmare and a toxic place. And, and, you know, the system treats you like an object of compliance rather than as a, as a clinical practitioner exercising your, your best clinical judgment in the service of your patient. Um, it's not a good place to work. And so, you know, all these messages need to be, be, uh, kind of packaged in a concise form that's powerful, that, that cuts out the arguments of the enemy and um, and makes it very easy for the public to understand and if that were to happen you know we we could maybe pave the way for Danielle Smith but um none of that works really being done right now mm.
1: I'm curious you know uh, I'd written down all these questions one of them that you know I, I'm really well I'll, I'll read you back something you said it, yeah. it, and I paraphrase it so I probably got it a little bit wrong but when HS takes over you mentioned talking to people raising you know beating the drum trying to warn people what this could mean and where this was going to head and everything else what was people's response back then
0: well i mean a lot of people were 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 agreeing like oh that doesn't sound good yeah it should stay in the <laughs> in in the community but okay well what are you going to do about it well i you know kids got hockey tonight i got uh, a date night plan i got you hmm. know netflix is I got to binge watch something. You know, this is the problem with a lot of this, right? It's, it's kind of um, public choice theory explains this, right? It explains. So, for example, with supply management, you know, you or I pay an extra two dollars or maybe twenty dollars a year for dairy because of supply management. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's not a huge amount. It doesn't. We don't notice it in our pocketbooks, but gotcha. it's kind of annoying to have to pay more and not have more options. But we're not going to go march on Ottawa and demand uh, that that Ottawa save us $20 a year and, and give us more options in the dairy aisle. On the other hand, if they threaten to remove supply management, you can bet your ass the dairy farmers will be mar- driving their tractors in a convoy, dumping manure on front lawns, making a stink, explaining to people, uh, you know, engaging in a propaganda campaign, explaining why this you know, opening up the dairy market is dangerous and, and a threat to Canadians. So, special interests have, you know, will fight tooth and nail because they stand to lose a huge amount. Meanwhile, you know, we lose a little bit and we don't really notice the loss. And so it's death by a thousand cuts, right? It's it's mm. a very slow death and then it's a very and then it happens very quickly. Once at a certain point, you've lost enough blood that you die quick. Um, but that that's how liberty goes away. It's it's death by a thousand cuts, not one big. Sword through the heart, kind of thing. And so, you know, um, yeah, with with the AHS thing, it's just, again, people, you know, at the end of the day, how much are you going to notice? You you know, how often do you call the ambulance? You know, how often do you call for emergency services? Not that often. And when you do, regardless of what system is in place, someone will probably show up. And maybe that, maybe it won't be as ideal as it should be, but
1: how do you then? Get people to whether it's pay attention or whether it's the, to get them to engage with something that will affect all of us at some point. Like I right. mean, it, it, it's it's you know, like it's just inevitable. If you're in Alberta, AHS, you're going to deal with them at some point. Like I mean, that that goes without saying. How do you right. get people? Is it, is it propaganda? Is it a, is it a coordinated media, you know, strike? I'm using, anyways, you get the point. Yeah.
0: Well, I think, I think it's, it's all of that. And, and, you know, one of the things I found is that um, stories help more than anything, right? I mean, was it Stalin who said a million dead is, is a stat. Uh, one dead is a tragedy and, you know, that's kind of how people look at it. Like you put a name and a face to a tragedy, um, it really drives it home. Whereas if you just say 20 people died in a car wreck, you think that's terrible. But if you see that that child's face and, and that individual and, and hear their story, it's really like, humanizes then, it. then it really humanizes it, right? And yeah. so we at this point, we've got all sorts of stories of tragedy in this uh, system that, that can be talked about. And, and I think it's incumbent to, to get those stories out, you know, part of the problem of course, is that AHS, um, uh, you know, has basically has a non-disclosure agreement with, uh, with practitioners that, uh, they're not allowed to talk about <laughs> that stuff. Um, but you know, there are ways around that. You find people who are willing to talk that don't work for AHS and, and, and that sort of thing. So, hmm.
1: well, I, you know, we've been talking through some different things and, and in- I, I want to talk. about, You know, you sent me the article. I read the article; it was fantastic. And I've had uh, Rupa Subramanya on uh, before to talk about uh, made and medically assisted suicide, um, and uh, you know, to jump from one one topic to the next. I just, you know, I don't want to. Well, I I do enjoy sitting here and, and talking for the rest of the day. I got no sure. problem. I think the listeners know that by now. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, you you wrote an article about uh, about this, and well, I. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. I, I was saying to you before we started, and I kind of said it right off the hop, like it was a very balanced take on this that as it goes along, you realize how dangerous it could become. Yeah. And I was wondering, well, maybe you could share some thoughts. You you seem to have, uh, well, a pretty good grasp on, uh, on the system, you know, with your background. Uh, and, and then, of course, uh, you know, <laughs> politics, meets, you know, uh, paramedic firefighter, uh, you know, you got your podcast, everything else you write and your writing is, I, I shared it on Twitter actually, before I came on. Cause I'm like, the, people probably actually read this. this is actually very, like very, very balanced on how a take on this is on someone's right to do this, except this is where it's leading to.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the, the problem is, you know, I don't have any Pragmatic solutions to this. I I, I want to raise the issues that that are happening when you have the state running a administering a program called assisted suicide. Um, you know I, I, you know I remember the Sue Rodriguez case from the nineties, kind of split the nation um, about this. Topic of assisted suicide, but at the end of the day, you could see this lady was clearly suffering. You know, she was to the point where she couldn't swallow. Her life was excruciating and painful. She was going to die in a few months, anyways. So why not let her die on her own terms? You know, or at at least why uh, criminalize people that would help her die on her own terms? Um, That that seemed to be a bridge too far, and. And, and so, you know, I'm very kind of, um, you know, as a libertarian, you own yourself, you should be able to do what you want with yourself. Um, you know, if you want to engage in behaviors that are unhealthy, uh, you know, staying up too late, drinking, you know, engaging in drug use or, or just, you know, doing those kinds of things. I, I don't think that's great, but I don't, I wouldn't use lethal force to stop you from, from, Making bad decisions, and and honestly, I, I think that a libertarian society becomes a much more socially conservative society, because you can't outsource the cost of your vice to society in general like you can now. Um, right now, if you are making bad decisions, you've got this very easy and comfortable safety net, no questions asked. Whereas in in a you know a, a more libertarian society while you would be in rely relying on charity or family members or something like that and and they generally uh say look you got to get your act together we'll help you out but you know so so there's a lot more and and what do you
1: sp- and sorry in society today what are you talking about specifically that basically becomes a crutch for
0: them oh well so so you have um unending medical care, right? So, you know, look, as a paramedic, I see the same people over and over again. I'm administering them Narcan. Um, it, it's become to the point now where where people feel safe uh, injecting an unknown substance into their blood or snorting an unknown substance because they know nearby uh, the government will provide them with Narcan. That'll That will stop them from overdosing, and and so people are taking more and more risks and engaging more and more debauchery. Let's say because that safety net is there, Uh, healthcare, you name it, right? It's like there's no um, no incentive to take personal responsibility uh, because the government just provides it. I mean, you could go down the list of things. Even I I see it all the time in my profession. Uh, We get calls for a house on fire, nine one one. This house is on fire. Okay, how many people are in the house? oh, I don't know, I was just driving by, but you should send fire trucks. And so you race across town, you send, you know, two or three stations full of fire trucks to this burning down house to find that it's the reflection of a sun, it's setting sun in the window or something like that. And um, again, what, so why didn't that person stop, knock on the door and do the you know what a responsible person would do and, and ask people to get out of the house well because there's a government department that will take care of that. So we've we've outsourced our personal responsibility in all sorts of ways uh, to to the government. My neighbor falls on hard times, uh, is having difficulty putting food on the table. Uh, I just shrug and say, well, there's a government department that'll take care of that. I, I don't feel any sense of duty to to help them out, fight them over. You know, again, I, I feel like this this um Outsourcing of responsibility to the government has essentially atomized us in our houses and, and, and you know, um, destroyed communities and, of course, destroyed families. Uh, I, I can get divorced without fault, right? Even if I cheat on or if my wife cheats or I cheat, um, you know, it's a no-fault divorce. So, uh, you know, the w- women can can exit marriages with no repercussions. I can take the kid, strip fathers of... There's no personal responsibility for your part of breaking up that marriage, of cheating, of breaking your marital vows, different things like that. You you can go through every aspect of society and see where uh, personal responsibility has been outsourced to the government. And, and, you know, this... And so you can expect when your personal responsibility for your mistakes and your sins and your vices is outsourced to the government. uh, Well, you're going to do a lot more of those kinds of things. And so society becomes much more debaucherous in my opinion, when you have um, uh, uh, more and more government involved in it. Um, And and whereas if I'm committing vice and doing things that are literally creating hell on earth for me, um, you know, I'm going to have to find my way out of that myself if it's a libertarian society or and I'm at least going to have to ask for help. Maybe I'll get some help. But again, I'm going to have to take the personal responsibility to ask for help and to um, placate the people that are helping me that. Yeah, I, I am sincerely on the road out of hell and working towards get, getting back into, you know, good graces uh, here uh, to, to maintain that. So I think you'd see a lot less um, a lot less vice, even though it would be legal. In a libertarian society so that's that's what i mean by does that kind of help answer your question or?
1: yeah yeah it, it does when i when i look at Tim, i go do you see brighter days in the future then or are you like <laughs> mm, we because you, you know like the whole thing about uh uh assist, bringing back to suicide is what I've watched is, and when I, the timeline, it just be, it's just as soon as the door got open, it's just a slippery slope, right? Like now, now, now you got, um, mental illness, right? You got, uh, you don't need to have terminally ill conditions where, and I'm butchering it here and you can do a better job of it. And, uh, I've read a little bit about mature minors at some point and you, and you go like, where are we going? Like, we're, we're just going to, if you're having a bad day, you can get it? Is that where we're going? And then, you know, uh, tack on to that. Um, the fact that uh, I read in your in your article about the organ donation, I'm going to read it off here so I don't screw this up. Nova Scotia recently became the first province in Canada to adopt presumed consent organ do- donation. This means that unless you explicitly opt out of organ donation, the state is your organs after you die, which, um, you know, I have a million thoughts about, but when you tack it on to assisted suicide, when you tack it on to all these different things, you're like, this is getting dangerous.
0: Right, right. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the dangers of state, uh, the state running this program. So, you know, uh, if you believe like I, even if you believe like I do, that a person should have the right to, to end their, their suffering and even get help doing that. um, You have to have serious concerns about the state running this program and you know there are a number of reasons for that Uh, i mean the first thing is that the incentives are all wrong uh for us as healthcare workers right so as as a state employee my job is to produce paperwork or data for the state it's some might say might think my job is saving lives and and patient care but no the state really doesn't care about that they only care about the the paperwork I produce. that That is what I'm judged on. That is what ensures I don't get fired. I don't get promotions uh, or extra money or uh, opportunity because I, I provided excellent patient care or because I have really good patient outcomes or because my patients give really good feedback and write letters to my boss. I get judged based on uh, on kind of arbitrary metrics in, in this PCR. Did I get out of the chute fast enough? Uh, you know did I get get out of the hall fast enough or um, uh, you know did I dot all my I's and cross all my T's did I did I get this piece of data or that piece of data and they need this data in order to redistribute funds to entrench their power within the bureaucracy to make the case that that they need more uh, power uh, to to operate things because look at this stat and look at that stat and and so that's my job and so Uh, My point here is that patient care actually gets in the way of me doing my job. I've got 30 or 40 minutes worth of paperwork to do for the state on each call I do. And um, when my patient says I'm in pain, or can you do this? Or can you do that? um, (laughs) uh, Well, now I have to put my paperwork down and go uh, (laughs) do this annoying thing. And, you know, so... Again, do this this annoying thing that is your job. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And it's become perverted, right? And and like this is a beautiful profession. Healthcare work is one of the most fulfilling things you can do. We all got into this because we love helping people, seeing a difference, you know, restoring order to to the chaos that is occurring in this emergency. That all that's the stuff that gets us up, and why we got into this. And to have our job reduced to I gotta produce this paperwork or I'm gonna get in trouble is it's perverse right and um, it, it gets in the way of me doing the th- all the things that bring me joy which is helping people providing maximum value to people and so now it, it it's gotten to the point where um, you know the incentive is to do as little work as possible because that's how you get ahead I can't make more money I can't get any any benefit at all uh, other than maybe, you know, it feels good when the patient says, thank you, or writes a letter. Yeah, that feels good. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I, I'm better off when I see fewer patients and when I do less work. Um, and and this is why you see paramedics hanging out in ambulance bays after they, they drop a patient off being like, oh man, I, I don't want to go out there again and have to be subjected to another four hour hospital hallway wait and dealing with Grumpy nurses and administrators and and this and that. The next thing, it's not the patients that that we don't want to provide care for. It's the all the rest of the stuff that that we're trying to get away from, right? And so, um, so again, our incentive here is to minimize work rather than maximize value. And and so, and, and this was really highlighted to me in uh, 2017 when my mom was sick. She was. You know, she was sick from what I would call the nocebo effect. You know, the placebo effect is is when you have positive beliefs about your health and your body heals. You ha- It has real physical manifestations in your body. While the nocebo effect is the exact opposite of that, it's when you have negative beliefs about your health and you, you get physically sick, like legitimately sick, and your organs start shutting down and different things because you have negative beliefs about your health. And it's a very powerful effect, as powerful as the placebo effect although it's not talked about that much, but doctors couldn't find anything wrong with her, but she was convinced there was something in her abdomen and, and this and that. So she really needed help switching her psychology from this negative fixation on her health to a positive uh, focus on her health. And the system just couldn't do that, right? The system is not geared to provide that. I mean, doctors are are incentivized to minimize visits to about seven minutes because they can't you know, they can't provide concierge service like they can, say, in California where, um, you know, for 700 bucks a month, I'll spend an hour a week with you talking about your health care problems. I'll go to the eMERGE if you ever show up there. I'll do house calls at any time of the night. No, no, they don't. You, you can't bill for that thing in Alberta. All you can bill for is patient visits and, and the, the treatments you provide them. And so your goal is to get as many patients through it in a day as possible, so you can pay off your artificially inflated student loans and and all your licensing fees and different things like that. And and so seven minutes isn't enough to, to deal with a case like my mom. You you know, nursing care when she finished having the surgery she didn't need and she was she was suffering horribly, um, and her health was spiraling down. She w- she was very high maintenance. She needed a lot of nursing care. And these nurses, I know how it is because my wife's a nurse. They're they're stretched thin following all the policies and procedures, doing all the documentation, they have to write so many notes. And, and, you know, the 10th time my mom called the the call bell, you know, the nurse took me aside. I could tell she was frazzled and she was, she was like at the end of her ropes in terms of, of all the work she had to do. And, and she's like, you know, have you guys considered medically assisted suicide? Um, You know, and I'm like, it, really shocked me. It was because my mom was perfectly savable. She just needed some, some kind of positive support, some kind of intervention that, that would get her mind going in the right direction. And the best this nurse could offer is maybe a lethal injection would be the most humane solution here. And of course that, that totally deflated my mom. I mean, she's, you know, she was a strong Christian woman. So suicide was off the table for her, but hearing those words was utterly, um, demoralizing De- demoralizing right and yeah. and it was it was you know she died within two weeks um and and again i don't i don't put personal responsibility or blame on that nurse who was making the best suggestion in a sense that she could given the constraints of the system and how it operates um uh, but the system incentivizes minimizing work because it overwhelms you with all this nonsense work when you could be you know and it's not just providing good patient care. It's like providing innovative or going that extra mile or maximizing patient care. You, you, you almost get punished for doing that. Right. So, so expecting our healthcare system to, to work, um, magical on my mom was, was impossible. Uh, so, so that's, that's one thing. And, and we see this incentive to minimizing work all over the place, you know, for example, one of the things we have in Alberta is called goals of care. Now, goals of care are supposed to be, represent a, a collaborative conversation you have with your family physician about what, what should happen in the event you're incapacitated. Uh, do you want CPR? What, what level of care? And there's about, I think, six or seven different levels of care, uh, that, that can be selected. Now, they're not, th- this document isn't signed by the patient. It's a physician's order. So it's signed by a doctor. Now, At the same time we have these goals of care, we have also had for years something called advanced directives.
1: I got to stop you there just for a second. I just want to make sure I got that clear. Uh, Goals of care, which deals with if you are incapacitated, knocked out, blah, 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 blah. get the point, you're in a rough spot, you haven't signed anything, just a doctor has signed off on what they're going to do.
0: Right. Okay. Right. And, and, And it's, and they, you know, they're supposed to have had a robust conversation with you about this and you, you, you know, um, take your wishes into account and all this stuff. But of course, again, we know that doctors minimize it, have a minimal amount of time well, you, to spend with you. Well, you, you
1: just said like they're trying yeah. to run through as many. And, and now sure. we've been through COVID and everything else for the last three years where it, getting into a physician is next to impossible other than right. the walk-in clinic or the emergency room. So who's having these conversations? Right, anyone? Right.
0: Well, I'm sure they're having I, these oh, conversations. Sure, I, 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 but, I mean,
1: I'm sure there are, but right. I mean, for a lot of us, they aren't.
0: But but yeah, I, again, I've talked to a lot of patients who have this and and they don't understand that this paperwork limits the amount of care I can provide you. And this is something that a lot of them say, oh, I didn't agree to that. I didn't understand that. That's not what I, so is I this, thought. So is
1: this, sorry, Tim, you, you yeah. got me. Is this like, Is this like elderly or is this like everyone? Or is this like across the board... I, I, I guess I'm, this could be so standard that maybe I've, I've right. overlooked it. I just, I've never heard of it before. Goals of care.
0: Right. Well, usually the other word for open is green sleeves because they're kept in a green sleeve with a transparent top and you're supposed to keep it on your fridge. So the doctor will fill out the goals of care, sign it, give it to you. You keep it on your fridge so that, you know, paramedics can, can see it. So normally it's only done with, with people who are in, in advanced years or have some kind of, um, uh, chronic health condition or, or terminal condition or something like that. Yeah, so okay. so we see them all the time, mostly in, in assisted living facilities or nursing homes. And these are people who, you know, still a lot of them want, um, you know, a, a fairly aggressive medical care, and and they deserve it. And a lot of times, aggressive medical care could actually help this person in some of these situations. But yet, th- they have these goals of care, which are. Uh, again, a physician's order that they don't understand. Um, And and I've always wondered, well, why do we have these goals of care? Because we already have something called advanced directives in Alberta. We have the advanced directive legislation, which allows anyone, you or I, to write out, even on a napkin, um, what we want in the event of incapacitation. It lets you say, I want my wife to be in charge of my healthcare decisions. Uh, I don't want CPR, or I want you to throw the whole operating room at me. you know, I, I want heroic effort, whatever you want, right? It's like, I want you to put me on ice and, and thaw me out in a thousand years so I'm like, no, yeah, you can't do that. but you know, you can at least say give people an idea of what you want and and then we are protected as healthcare practitioners. If we take that in good faith, we're like, you know, um, that that we're doing what the patient would have wanted. So why do we need these two things? Well, I think a lot of it is because a lot of people don't fill out advanced directives. So the default, if you don't fill it out, is you get the full meal deal. You get CPR, you get, you know, ventilators, you get, you know, all all the things we can throw at you to try to keep you alive. But these goals of care bring it so far the other direction that a lot of people are getting minimal care. And, and, you know, again, these, these goals of care are a lot of times informed by nursing home staff, which are... Overburdened with work and don't want to do as much work, uh, and and so you know they authentically believe that they they get themselves to authentically believe that this this patient wouldn't benefit from from slightly more aggressive care that we ought to do the bare minimum to to treat this person in the event that they get ill or, or incapacitated. And again, just a, a kind of a demonstration of the things I see every day that that highlight um, this. This systemic incentive to minimize work, in a sense, right? So that so that's one one thing that ought to concern us uh, dramatically is, is that um, you know people that are minimized that that have the incentive to minimize work shouldn't be pushing um, in lethal injection on us because that's the ultimate way to minimize my work as a lethal, as a healthcare pr- provider. Hey hey buddy, uh, you're overdosing, you want me to just help you along with a lethal injection here because then I won't have to do a, you know, spend time with you in your poopy pants and clean up my ambulance and, you know, do all this other stuff. Um, You know, I shouldn't be the one pushing that on someone. Uh, The the next thing is, you know, I heard one of my coworkers not too long ago, uh, since MAID is in the news, you know, we go to suicidal patients all the time and um, he's like, well, what are we supposed to do with these people now? Like, are we supposed to offer a mental health or a lethal injection? Like what's, what's the default? And that's a good point. It's like, what, what are, how are we supposed to look at these people who are uh, wanting to die, attempting suicide? We get called for whatever reason. I mean, you know, our, our default assumption has always been, we intervene uh, because this person maybe isn't in the right mind or, you know, they're, they're having a mental break or whatever. And, you know, we forcibly can find them if need be until they're in the right mind and, and, you know, are thinking better and have a little bit more optimism. Um, but now it's like, OK, well, if mental illness is going to be one of the, the requirements or, or one of the, the um, prerequisites that is accepted for, for um, enrollment into MAID, then then uh, shouldn't we be offering these people? Uh, made service and wouldn't that also decrease the amount of work we have to do if we don't have to deal with this person over and over again with their psychological ailments so it sends us a message it sends a confusing message to healthcare workers about what we're and, and i suspect this is exactly what happened in in the case of that um that veterans affair person who who kept telling all those veterans that made service is available that guy probably thought he was he was doing them a favor by outlining all the all the different options available for them. while well, people who are at the end of their rope don't need to be told that death is an option they need to to be given every every uh reason to hope for a brighter tomorrow that they can get um not not like hey we can help you out with that suicide if you want you don't need to do it yourself we'll do it in a much more humane way um so you know you you can't tell me that um that there aren't going to be burnt out healthcare practitioners who aren't going to be taking every opportunity to whisper to their hopeless cases that that made exists and explaining to them how they can enroll in it and and that's a real problem well, I mean
1: uh, look at the growth in uh, medically assisted suicides in Canada I think it, the first year it was a thousand and by uh, 2021, I don't know if I've seen 2022 statistics, but 2021 is 10 grand, I believe. Yeah. We're
0: up, we're up to a total of about 33,000 deaths now. Yeah. And so,
1: so like, you know, and then you tack on, uh, you know, you you talk about the mental health side of it and all, all, I, I say this all the time, you know, I wasn't a guy that, um, uh, put a whole lot of thought into that. Not saying people had bleeding hearts or whatever, Tim. I just I just didn't get it. And then I had my own mental health moment in the middle of COVID. Right. And you go, oh, oh, okay, I get it now. So, you know, when you talk about maybe this person just isn't in their right mind, we're probably seeing more of that than ever before. You probably have an interesting insight in this. Oh, wow, um, absolutely. Because of your background. I mean, like segregating people against uh different parts of the population that filtered all the way down to the family unit yeah has been a drastic or dangerous or whatever bloody word trying to spit out here this morning folks the old tongue yeah. at times doesn't want to work but it's like what we've done now has fractured the family unit which in turn fractured the community which in turn is fractured you know and it just you know the ramifications are endless and absolutely. the mental health ramifications of that are endless and i'm sure once again you have something to say on that
0: well absolutely i mean you know the the amount of what i would call emer- emergencies of isolation have just skyrocketed over the last two years right it's just people who are anxious who are um who are lonely, who are depressed, who have been cut off. You know, I've had people crying and just beside themselves saying that uh, I can't see my mom, I she can't fly here to see me and this and that. And, and yeah, just absolutely destroying their lives. It, you know, it, it's literally like the state wants us to be in matrix like isolation pods, you know, feeding us a steady stream of pay- state propaganda directly into our brains and and taking care of us from, and, and then milking us for our productivity. Um, they're it's soul destroying and, and not only emergencies of isolation, but what I, you know, I would call emergencies of dependence. And by that, I mean, and and we've seen a lot of this since AHS took over, but it's been ramped up again. Everything that was bad about the system prior to COVID um, has been amplified a hundred times because of, of the COVID regime. And, and, you know, People being told constantly over the past two years, don't trust your own judgment. Trust the science. Trust the professionals. Trust the experts. People don't trust themselves when they they have uh, any kind of weird health ailment, and so the the uh, the low acuity of the calls we're going to is is unprecedented as well. Just people calling us for the what what we would classify or look at as the most trivial nonsense reason that's not even an emergency or even something you need to go see your doctor about
1: what was what's trivial uh, what, well, guys, are we talking like on the finger or are we
0: talking sure oh, okay i'll just give you an example of recently um someone had the stomach flu whole family had the stomach flu um <laughs> a cannabis nurse friend gave gave him uh, a little edible that said would help of course it didn't help it made things worse and made him paranoid and stuff so he called the ambulance cuz he thought, you know, he didn't know what was going on. I mean, you you, just, you shouldn't eat edibles when you're, you know, you're you're fine, right? And um <laughs> what else? Oh, a guy is feeling aches and pains um because he was in a car accident 2 weeks ago. Um you know, just just stuff like like that. Just uh you know, I I've, oh, I I took up my blood pressure reading, and it and it said it was pretty high. Well, how do you feel? I feel fine. Okay, <laughs> like can't can't you just talk to your doctor about this next time you go to see him? Like why are you calling an ambulance, taking us off the road? To uh, just a lot of a lot of reassuring people is what's been going on over the last two years. That you're okay, you're fine. You're you know you're having a lot of anxiety attacks too because people just think they got you know, they get, get a little sniffle or they get a cough and next thing you know, they have themselves believing they've got a deadly disease and that they, they call the ambulance because I think I've got COVID. I think I'm going to die. It's minor. you all your vital signs are normal. Like you're having an anxiety attack. You just need to breathe through it and don't think about it. Um, just a lot of that kind of thing. Right. So.
1: Man, that's, uh, heartbreaking honestly it, it is
0: and, and you know as much as you want to look down at these people and go oh man this is pathetic it's like i i also understand it right and you know and you it, just, it's it's similar to what i saw working um on reserves or near reserves right here you have a, a group of people whose legs have been broken by the government and they've been offered a crutch and they've been made completely dependent wards of the state and that you know they're they're that that creating that that environment creates a culture of complete dependency, and I uh, you know I don't know what to think of this acre pain. So what I'm seeing now, what what I've seen over the years on reserves has now spread out to the general population, where a lot of these minor ailments are just people who are anxious, who don't trust themselves, who don't know, who aren't educated, who think that even if they are educated, I, I I'm I don't know what's going on because uh, I don't understand you know. I'm clearly not smart enough to understand COVID and vaccines and all these things, and, and so I need someone, an expert, to tell me what's going on with my body right now. And yeah, so we've we've been seeing a lot of that.
1: You you know, um, once again, you have an interesting uh, perspective being um, all over the uh, all over the province, coming from a you know a small town background. Now you're in Emmonton? Edmonton, Edmonton?
0: Sherwood Park. Yeah, yeah, Sherwood Park.
1: Okay. Um, You know, I I got a a show coming up here um, Sunday, January 22nd to the listener. And uh, of course they can find tickets in the show notes, Uh, a little uh, uh, self-advertising. Anyways, it's about the rural-urban divide because we've, Mm. you know, you can see the division of of different populations and, and, uh, well, and just how they not only vote different, but think about issues different. Sure. Um, I'm curious, Tim, you're a guy who would have, I, I think, you know, I, as I sit here, probably a fascinating perspective on this because you get to see, you know, you're just talking about the first nations. You, you, you talked earlier on about, uh, Fort McMurray and, and different parts that way. And now being, uh, you know, in the, in, you know, the capital city, uh, or near it. I mean, geez, sure. Parts pretty much, uh, uh, Edmonton. It is Edmonton pretty much. Anyways, um, what are your thoughts on the rural urban divide and how these different populations are just i don't know I'm curious your thoughts
0: yeah, I mean it's clear I mean I, I think a lot of politics can be chalked up to the rural urban divide right? I mean growing up on the farm we didn't see the government, we didn't have much need for it, and when we did see them, it wasn't for anything good. they weren't helping us out with anything you know <laughs> whereas you know in in urban areas um, you know you are you're living on top of each other, you're very close and and so it's much more. Rule oriented right I mean there are rules for what you can do on the sidewalk and what you can do outside and uh, you know what one person does affects another person more so I think they rely on on the government solving these problems a lot more and they're, they're not as close to the they're, they're not as close to what keeps them alive as as rural folks are right I mean in, in out in in the country, you see life and death on a regular basis. You're involved in usually in, in some kind of agriculture and growing food. Um, you see how everything's produced. In, in you don't have any of those responsibilities when you're you're in the city. You just everything's kind of provided for you there. It's there for convenience and, and it's there laid out. Um, so you, you see this show up in all sorts of ways. And yeah, you know when when I worked rural, you know I used to work um, a little community called Spirit River, north of uh, north of Grand Prairie. And it was just a bunch, it was a big farming community, a lot of Ukrainian farmers. And I mean, they wouldn't call 911 until their, their limb was wrapped up in a PTO shaft or something like that. Right. I mean, you, you were constantly like lecturing them, like, look, you got to ask for help more often. Like you're showing up to the the hospital, basically in cardiac arrest in a private vehicle. You probably could have called an ambulance, bud, like, (laughs) like how, you know, ask for help a little bit more. Um, but you know, again, that whole, uh, spirit of self-reliance is very strong in, in, in the country, whereas in, in the city, it's like, oh my God, I'm anxious. I don't know what's going on. I I took an edible and I have a stuck fart and I need someone to tell me (laughs) what, what the hell's going on with me and give me some reassurance. Um, it's a very different, um, you know, and, and so these people were saying, Hey, don't call for help so much, learn a little bit of response, personal responsibility. So so how do you, how do you give, because I agree with you, like working on
1: oneself, right? Personal responsibility, taking ownership of the things that you can control, learning some things. Uh, uh, there's a lot of different things in in that realm. How do you find a way to do that for a population that becomes more and more, well, the opposite of it? Because I, I you know, I, I I quote this stat all the time, 83.3% of Canadians live in a rural or urban, se- urban setting. Sorry. Um, how do yeah. you, you know, and, and that doesn't mean to say that all of them don't know exactly what you're talking about, but we can all probably agree that as they move into an urban setting, their more reliance on government is just is naturally there. Cause that's where it is. Yeah. How do you teach that? Or do you need the help of the bureaucracy to even get it there? And that would be a conflicting interest for them.
0: Yeah, well, I, I don't think there's any any government solution to this that that won't um, horrendously backfire on <laughs> us, you know. Um, and in fact, I think what we're seeing today is a lot of that, a lot of government horrendously backfiring on us. You know, I remember in the 80s, you know, the, the big threats to freedom were... You know, conservatives trying to censor stuff that you could see and and say and and different things like that, and and limit the thoughts you could have, and you know, so so they promoted you know government censorship of all sorts of things, and now the the left has taken that and is basically uh, using it as a cudgel against conservatives to censor what <laughs> what they can say, right? So so anytime you you give the government uh, power to use its guns on your enemies, you give them uh, guns that will eventually be turned on you. And so I'm very skeptical that there's any government solution to this idea of personal responsibility, but I I do, you know, I I think the best, I I don't really know the answer. What some of the things I've thought about, you know, some of the projects I would like to get off the ground in the future. um, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to mentor quite a few young men and, and there's a real shortage of masculine role models in culture. And, and it's usually, you know, traditional men in in a family, men traditionally take on that role of teaching responsibility, right? It's, it's like, um, mom wants to leave those training wheels on forever and dad can't wait to get them off. And there's probably a point at which it's too early to take the training wheels off. And there's definitely a point at which it's too, it too, you've left them on way too long. And so it's that conversation between mom and dad that, that kind of finds the hopefully the the middle ground where but it's the it's that masculine energy that says hey this kid's got to learn to ride the bike it's gotta, he's got to he's going to fall off he's going to skim his knees he's going to learn some valuable lessons from from uh engaging in that and taking some responsibility and and that's a good thing and so you know there there's that old saying that said uh, have women raise good children and and men raise good adults and you know it, we we've got an infantilized um, culture in, in the urban areas. But I, I have to believe, and, and I see this and I mean, Jordan Peterson is a perfect example of this. Example. There's, there's yep. a huge market demand for that masculine voice saying, Hey, take, take the training wheels off, take some personal responsibility in your life. Be Don't be afraid to fail and to risk, um, getting hurt and to risk uh, all these things. Because on the other side of that is is learning opportunities and growth and, and becoming more and more competent and more confident in yourself. And I can't believe that these people that are scared, witless in their homes and, and anxious about every ache and pain can feel that good about their lives. And so I, I think there's a big market demand out there for masculine. So one of the things, you know, I, I've been doing is, is just informally kind of mentoring young men who asked me for help and, and helping them, you know, get, get some good habits in their life, some discipline and, and take personal responsibility and different things like that. You know, I thought about maybe, I think we need a lot more of that. I think maybe bigger programs, people willing to step up as role models. I, I've had the benefit of, of having amazing masculine role models. You know, I, I grew up in, in a fire service basically as he coming yeah. up in the early twenties and and seeing these guys who were running into burning buildings and 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 uh, hazing you, right? And, and making you go through the gauntlet to become included in the group and putting you under pressure and making you feel stressed and making you, you know, earn that place. And then how good it feels when you do earn your place in that group and having them, you know, like I, I remember the first one of the first calls I went on as, a, as an EMT, I, it was uh, this cabin that burnt up. It was this old hermit living in it. And we were just doing a standby for the fire department. And when the, the place burnt up, we saw that, that his smoldering corpse was, was in there and it was burnt to a crisp. I mean, the only skin left on him was his bum. He had his, you know, he was burnt from his mid shaft femur down, mid humerus down. Um, and, and they are like, okay, kid go in there and bag that body up. And I'm like, what? And so I went in there, and, and like, when I rolled him, I first of all I needed to use a pry bar to roll him up because he was stuck to the ground. Then the back of his skull came out when I rolled him, and his soupy brains f- fell out, and a piece of his intestine flopped over, and I caught a whiff of his charred bowels, and I started dry heaving off to the side, and it took me like a couple minutes to get my shit together to get back in there and bag him up, and on the way back to the to the station. I was sitting in the back with this guy in a body bag and you know, my mentor kind of looked back at me and said, Hey, uh, first crispy critter kid. And I'm like, Oh God, that's so inappropriate, but so funny. And like, you know, up until that point I was like, what white face, I didn't know how to be or act like I'd never seen anything like this before in my life. I just wasn't prepared for it. And, and then when he saw me laughing, he doubled down. He's like, you guys feel like barbecue for lunch. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so bad. This is ridiculous. (laughs) Like, but you know, he took me, he took me aside afterwards at, at the station privately and said, look, I said some very inappropriate things, dark humor. That's, that's how we deal with things. This is how we create kind of a clinical detachment from our job, how, how we can make the best out of a really bad situation. What you did was, was great. You went in there and you struggled, right? Like you dry heaved and that's normal. That Every one of us goes through that. And But you know what you did? You got yourself back together, you put yourself together and you got the job done. And awesome, good job. I said. He said, we'd never say this stuff out in public. This all stays behind closed doors. But, you know, th- th- this is how we deal with it. So he taught me two valuable things in that little conversation, in that little interaction. He taught me how to have some clinical detachment, not to um, dwell on, um, the, the tragedy that, that the people we deal with are going through. And he taught me that overcoming, uh, a stressful situation can feel really good when you get the job done and, and do it a good jo- job of it. And so that year, you know, I couldn't get enough, the, the more gore, the more chaos, the more tragedy, really the better. Because I was the one helping out. I was the one facing that head on and putting things mm-hmm. back into it. And I was lucky enough to have a masculine mentor there that that put me in the right mental frame. That let me see things through the correct lens. So that not only did I not get broken down by my, my the calls I was going on. I was actually built up. I was becoming more and more confident. More and more confident. I was anti-fragile. I was growing from all this stress and, and disorder that I was being exposed to because of the way I was confronting it. Then a couple of years later, when I graduated my ACP, my advanced care paramedic, I went to a very progressive uh, organization, an EMS service. Um, you know, the first mass casualty incident we went to again, I was feeling like, yes, this is what I got into it. Yeah. We were overwhelmed. Yeah. Someone died, but you know what? No one could have put that scene back together and restored order. Like we could, we work, we were awesome. And, and then I heard, okay, we're going to have a debrief after this call, right? And um, I'm thinking, awesome, we're going to talk about all the ways we kicked ass and all the ways uh, we could do even better next time. And I was looking forward to it. And I walked into that room kind of smiling ear to ear, feeling good about my job. And it looked like I walked into a funeral home. There was a facilitator there who turns out was a mental health facilitator. There, It was this new thing called critical incident stress debriefing. And one by one, all my colleagues talked about how they were victimized by the call, how all they could think about was the victim's family and how this was horrific and how they were helpless to save that life and how they, and, and I'm like, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm a monster. I'm like, I'm thinking about this all wrong. I, I, yeah, that, that person, that was a person. And here I am just thinking about how I kicked it, how we all kicked ass on that call and someone died and and they have family. And, and so by the time it got to me, you know, I was almost in tears thinking about how, you know, and then shortly, and and so now I've shifted from this masculine kind of, uh, lens of the world about how to, how to confront chaos and disorder and, and make it right. And how that can create all sorts of great personal growth and make you more competent and, and a better, um, Family man and a better member of the community because you know you you want men that are competent at dealing with disorder. To now, I'm a victim and I'm helpless, and that carried over into the next year. We I had three kids die in the back of my ambulance, and there was nothing I could do about it. And I was dwelling on this fact, and um, and I, again, it was it was that whole victim mentality starting to insinuate itself into culture and into uh, my culture particularly that that created you know anxiety PTSD symptoms like nightmares i couldn't look my kids in the eye i i was like i was going to quit work i was just suffering horribly i hit the bottle hard and um and then it, you know it was one therapist session and actually one question in the therapist session that that flipped all those symptoms off and made me realize how i'd been thinking about it all wrong and he you know i was i was just commiserating about how helpless i was and how I couldn't provide any value to these people and and like I'm just why I got into this profession to save lives and I couldn't even do that. And the, the therapist looked at me and said, Tim, uh, I'm just an objective observer. Don't know anything about your profession. But um, is it really true that you didn't provide value on those calls? And I have to think about it for a second. It put me on my heels and you know what? I, I realized, look, all those family met parents, they hugged me afterwards and thanked me for for trying and thanked me for um, bringing some order to the chaos. And like, if I were in their shoes, I would have wanted someone like me, even if it was hopeless for my kid, you know, I didn't, wouldn't want to have to deal with that alone. I'd want someone who knows what to do. And, and I realized I'd been focusing on all the ways I was helpless instead of all the ways that I was actually providing incredible value to people and doing great things. And that switched things off. And and that, that really set me on a journey of, uh, you know, it's, it's personally liberating to, to have that, that mindset of personal responsibility, of focusing on the things where you can, you're actually providing value of things that are within your control, within your, uh, I mean, if you focus on those things, you'll expand that domain, you'll expand your sphere of, of influence and control. Uh, whereas the other way just causes you to shrink and break down and and we're, our young men, and especially you know urbanites are, inculcated with that message and it can't feel good to them. And, it, and, and mm. so, you know, I, I want to, I think we can provide another message. And I think that's, that's one of the projects that, that uh, I like to take on is, is thinking about how to, how to engage with people and, and show them a different way of looking at the world. It's like, you know, Henry Ford said, if you believe you can or you cannot, you're right. And it's the same with a lot of mental health issues that we're faced with Um, you know, again, my daughters are both paramedics and uh, I had this chat with them before they went to school. I said, you're going to be told over and over again that you're a victim of your profession, that you're, that all these calls you're going on are mental health challenges. Well, if you believe that's true, you will suffer with terribly with anxiety and PTSD. Like I did, you can also choose to believe something else that these calls will make you a better version of yourself. They'll become stronger, more mentally healthy because of them, and more competent and become a person that, that we all look to as family members in times of tragedy and chaos uh, as, our, as our rock. And, and so if you believe that, that'll be true. So choose what you how you want to look at your job and don't believe these people that are going to try to tell you you're a victim.
1: That's really well um, a well put, and I appreciate you sharing that. I've been wrestling with uh, um, an idea, and we, we started and I, I apologize to the listener. I hate to regurgitate the same story over and over again, but you know, they're saddled with me, so what are you going to do? <laughs> um, I've been working on this idea uh, well, I mean, it's, it's been since 2018. I didn't realize I was working on it back then either. It was a group of five guys got together, started a book club uh, the idea, the general idea was, um, better husbands, better fathers. It was just, a, just a way to get together, have a little bit of socializing, read a book, challenge someone's thoughts, hear what's going on in their personal life and maybe go, well, maybe you get a little better, or maybe you could think about this, or maybe, ah, don't look at it that way. Or maybe, you know, anyways.
0: That's awesome. And, I love that.
1: Well, and well, here's the thing, Tim, out of it sparked the podcast. The podcast came out of it. Oh. It was the first group of guys that I, I told the idea to. They they encouraged me to go with it. Um you've had a, one of them build or take over a but like start a butcher shop, right? He's wow. got a you know. Um another one has become, you know, so involved in his community, like from fundraising to president of this to, you know, and, and another one is, has taken over arena Bo- or not taken over. I can say that ran and become the president of arena board. And then the other one went into politics, you know, uh, Maverick party and then helping start a new one in Saskatchewan. And, and it just, what, what I, what I saw was like confidence, you know, and, and we're all, none of us are young. I'm, you know, I'm 36. So you might call me young. Someone else is going to call me old, whatever um the group of us isn't like we're 80 and it isn't like we're 20 but what i saw and still see is like the confidence to go out and and do things there's always improvement uh that's needed but they feel confident i feel confident I, you know geez i've been doing this almost four years it's been pretty cool and i'm like how do you translate that to other men and i'm like they all need their own it doesn't have to be reading. Some people can't. Some people don't want to read whatever. But challenging the thoughts in each another's heads um, so that you can articulate what you're trying to say and all that good stuff and get it out of your head, I've I found is so healthy, right? And then to be in yeah. a safe spot with a group of men. Anyways, the story is essentially, I put this idea to two uh, guests on, on the podcast, um, Joy and, and Blaine uh, Stefan, And so we started a Monday book club no not a book club a monday i don't know what the hell we're calling it monday men's group i guess where we get together for an hour and a half it's a very strict hour and a half time frame where you 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 kind of lay out a few things and then discuss an issue and everybody kind of gets to and i'm not saying it's a solution for the world i'm just saying it's an idea that has worked really really well for me and i was one of those guys and still am at times that is just like I don't know what the hell I'm doing, you know? And I I think everybody has those moments, but to, to have a group of men specifically for me as a married man and and kids and to see other men dealing with other things and be able to offer not only suggestions, but a little bit of support, challenge your thoughts, man, don't we love a little competition of why the hell am I so pissed off at them, Right? right? All those things, I come out, I'm really energized. Like I'm really, really energized. I'm like, man, that... I could do that again. Right. Right. Isn't overdoing it. It's anyways, it's, it's when I hear you talk, I'm like, I'm really glad you shared all that because the victim mentality can suck the life out of you. And with a lot of men in, in a, in an urban setting, I had, you know, the dependence and everything I don't know as farm kids, you know, you, you get to go out and do whatever the hell you want. I mean, it's, it's, it's a crazy life. It's a fun life. And then now living in Lloydminster, which, you know, Is certainly to certain uh, urban settings a smaller, definitely connected to the farming industry and the oil industry and everything else. Still in the city, and finding ways for my kids to have the same freedom that I had, Mm. where you could just walk out the front door and go find trouble. Yeah. Um.
0: Anyways, that's my thought on uh, what you're talking about. Well, I I love that. Um. You know, that you that's a great idea. I mean, it makes me want to start uh, start one of those here because you know I'd love to have some some men in my community um to talk to about some of this stuff because i think it, it is important i mean we, we've lost a lot of these this um connective tissue in our communities right i mean it used to be maybe like the lions club or the yeah. legion or the loyal o- order well, of water about, buffalo or
1: think about it we used to like not um, we used to but like a huge part you know if you rewind the clock and go back to like maybe the time of rome like at a young age, you were in physical combat, iron sharpens iron, you uh, were a brotherhood, you, you, and when you get into those, you get dark humor, you get all that. Like yeah. uh, to me, I grew up in hockey and yeah. hockey, there's some dark humor in there, boy. Oh, yeah. So when you start talking, I'm like, oh, that's funny. I yeah. mean, it's <laughs> morbid, but it's, it's like, morbid, but I get it. Like, so and, it makes it funny. Yeah. And the, the world is, that is being erased. And the problem with that is, is part of that is really healthy. Like it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's I don't. I don't know the word, but I. Right. I appreciate you sharing it.
0: Yeah. Well, I. I mean, look, the, what we're talking about here, I think, is is what I mean by shifting culture, right? And and mm-hmm. and the uh, antidote, and maybe the white pill to um, to this problem that we face of of government. I mean, we we look at this problem and we see it as this giant nebulous federal government overreaching, imposing on us. Um, destroying the family, destroying our community, destroying those fraternities that we have with with our brothers, um, just just every walk of life. But reverse engineer it. Let's start from the bottom up. How can I show up as a better person as the man in the mirror? As Jordan Peterson? How can I clean my room? Right. Yeah. Um, how can I become a how can I be a better husband and father to my wife, despite Justin Trudeau and despite all the, the attacks on the family yeah. and whatever? hey, guess what? I still have an incre- more control in my family and more influence in my family than Justin Trudeau does. And I'm going to make be the best father and husband I can be despite that bastard. How can I be a, a better member of my community? What can I do in my community to provide service? Can, can I get together with some men and, and create a fraternity despite uh, all these traditional institutions being destroyed by our government? And yes, the answer to those questions is yes. And if enough people do those things, then then eventually government shifts, uh, in my opinion. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be this. We don't have to look at um, this insurmountable problem and this hopeless problem and say, oh, we're, we're paralyzed here. There's no, what's the one big solution that will fix all this? No, there is no one big solution. That's, that is part of the problem, that everyone thinks there's one big solution. And that's why we're in this quagmire to begin with, because everyone goes to government to imp- impose this their is, solution. But right here, right now, most- this is the solution.
1: This is the most hopeful I've heard you talk the entire podcast, and I think that's something. Right. I look at it and I go, I keep saying to myself, it's the long game. And the long game is whether or not everyone would ever adopt what I'm talking about. I'm like, I think there's something there. It's just the long game, right? You have to you have to uh, focus right. on yourself. You need support in that. And if enough of those groups formed in just one community, imagine how strong that community would be
0: right right and, and look the people pushing the opposite of what we're pushing here are not uh not impressive specimens in any way right <laughs> they they are they're dumb they're weak they're <laughs> you know they're they're whiners they're they're victims and our, our goal should be to pull them out of that and and like you know pull up your pants stand up straight hit the gym uh read some books you know do something to improve yourself take on some stressful things and, and confront them competently and get gain more confidence in your life all those things we should encourage them but if they won't i mean eventually the mark we're going to win out just by the power of attraction i mean what are you going to be more yeah. attractive to a soy boy over here who's whining about everything or guys who have have um are very happy and living meaningful purposeful lives with um good jobs good family good, good connections to their community i mean ob- the, the answer is obvious and, and so you know we don't have to have this grand plan people
1: people underestimate what a little bit of confidence does for an individual and the power of belief when you believe someone can do something that is like giving them an energizer bunny sized battery and away they go right I, i've i've experienced that firsthand back um back in my you know I had this wonderful hockey career Tim like I you know it wasn't Mm -hmm. NHL it wasn't making a million dollars by any stretch but I got to see parts of the world that most don't and I got to play hockey there and it all started with me quitting hockey and then getting a call from a coach Uh, you know I've been told I was not tall enough and I wasn't big enough and I was this and that Mm -hmm. and finally you just you're just tired of it and then you get a call and a coach says I'd like you to come play for me and I tell you, that right wow. there, immediately you're like, yeah, all right, I'm out the door and because uh, I wanted to play. I was just tired of being told no and rejected, and rejection sucks. Yeah. The power of belief is a powerful thing. And a little bit of confidence, a little bit of brotherhood. I don't know where, where the, the idea leads, but I laugh because I'm like, you know, we've been, it's, it, I hate to stick on the doom and gloom because there's so many things coming down the pipe that just, just like, man, what are we doing in Canada? Like, What are we doing? And yet I, I I start to see other things and, I, and and then I, you know, of course we have this chat and I'm like, I think there's ways to push the needle the other way in a healthy way right. that strengthen not only the individual, not only the family, but the community all in not one fatal swoop. That sounds a little, but you, you get the point. And right. I, I don't know. That's my hope anyways.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I used to joke around about, uh, you know, like Barack Obama had that book called the audacity of hope. And I always thought, well, there's, there's no audacity and hope. I mean, if you, if you're pretty confident of the outcome, have some optimism, how hard is it to act? I mean, it's easy to act. Where what's really hard to do. What's really audacious is acting when things are completely hopeless. You know, mm-hmm. when, when there's a zombies around you and you've got one bullet left, do you, do you take out the horde or shoot into the horde with a smile on your face? Or do you put one in your head and take yourself out of the game? Well, I'm the kind of guy who goes down swinging and smiling. Right. But, you know, I've come to believe a little bit more in in hope. Right. And, and, and look, I know we've been kind of cynical and and talking about how everything is doom and gloom, but, but the hope for me is that despite all the doom and gloom, just even if the worst case scenario is true and society is breaking down and and there's all, I I just have the strong belief that me and my family and the people in my, in my circle, are gonna be okay because we've got each other and we're, we're competent and we're, you know, we, we know how to survive and thrive. And in fact, if we can see chaos coming, uh, if we can see um, how, how things are falling apart, in a lot of ways we're, we can position ourselves in an anti-fragile way to, be, to become even better versions of ourselves. on the other side of that when things reset, not maybe like the great reset, but maybe reset in a way that <laughs> that would be more, more like us, right? And, and you know, there's this uh, libertarian um, uh, investor called Doug Casey who wrote a book in the 70s called, I think it was called Crisis Investing or something like that. And, and I mean, that's what he did. He, he, he could see the writing on the wall for a lot of countries and see how their socialist policies were going to destroy them. And then invest in the things that were going to become very valuable when things fell apart, and and that society comes out the other side and resets to something more. Um, so, so you know, even even if things in the future get a lot more funky, let's say we still have a lot of room for optimism, and we can still become better, better versions of ourselves and, and flourish and, despite it.
1: And you can prepare now. Right, yeah, like exactly. uh, you know, one of the old farmers from the area once told me uh, something: the good times, you always prepare for the bad. You always, you always find ways to insulate yourself from what's, you know. Eventually, I mean, it, it's not a straight up rise to, you know, utopia or whatever people think as there. You know, it, it's a roller coaster. Life is a roller coaster of ups and downs, and uh, the way you hopefully, you know. Well, I just, I just look at it and I go, so the way we can, you you know, agenda 2030, 2035, there's a whole bunch of years coming up that don't sound that great, especially for what we do and everything else. Um, so you, you can either acknowledge it and start to do things that will not only benefit yourself, your family and your community. And in turn, if all of us did that, that'd be the province, that'd be the country, you get it. Um, You can do that right now. I mean, it's as simple as, you know, uh, for some people hitting the gym, for others, for me, I need... uh, It's the mental warfare that just, you know, I need to sharpen my brain a lot and I need people to challenge it. I need to have people on that um, make me think about things and then I need to, as I think about them, I need others to help me explore what I'm actually talking or thinking about because Jordan Peterson the very beginning... What a fantastic man to watch. He still is. Yeah. In the beginning, when he'd walk around and be like, listen, you're getting this pretty raw. Like I'm trying to talk out my thoughts, which is a dangerous thing to do. And like early on, that was like just magnificent. Either way. Here's your final question, Tim. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad you reached out. I'm glad I, you know, found uh, some time to do this. And I'm sure down the road, we will, we will um, cross paths again. It's, um. It's a crude master final question. So shout out to Heath and Tracy McDonald. They've been supporters of the podcast since the beginning. And it's it's a, it's a deep one or an easy one. I don't know where Tim will... A libertarian probably has thought about this, I have to assume. But it says, Heath's words, if you're going to stand behind a cause, then stand behind it absolutely. What's one thing Tim stands behind?
0: Ooh, uh, that is a deep question. Well, I, I mean, I, I stand the thing I stand behind most consistently and absolutely is, is just the idea of Liberty self-ownership that you own yourself. I mean, it it informs almost everything I do, all the actions I take, you know, whether it's my, my colleagues being uh, threatened with firing because they, they they're being forced to put something in their body. They don't want, Um, you know, it caused me to act, you know, and, and I, I did it at, the threat of my job, you know, I, HR had a chat with me because of some of the things I was doing out there and, and you know, they, were, they weren't big fans of, of my activism. Um, but I, I've done that consistently, I guess, for the last 15 years or so, and it's got me into trouble. It's, it's definitely uh, not necessarily been good for my career. It, it's definitely harmed me. So I guess my track record would say all these causes for liberty whenever I see liberty threatened, especially in my immediate vicinity. So when it comes to my colleagues, when it comes to EMS, my community, I tend to get very outspoken about these things. And, um, and I stand behind them to the point of, of, um, you know, personal ruin, I guess. Um, and I have no regrets. I'm glad I did. It's given me a purposeful life and a meaningful life and things tend to work out. Um, not like how you would imagine, but, but how, um, but in, in, in even better ways, you know, here I am on the Sean Newman podcast, right. Uh, The Joe Rogan of Canada. And um, who would have, who would have guessed that? And, and look, Sean, and I'll tell you, this is just the last thing. This all stemmed what really started making me realize I need to stand on my principles, be, be steadfast in the man I am not cave to society and culture was back in, I think it was about 2008 or, or nine I was I was in a, a basement fire in a hoarder's house. So imagine um, just junk up to your you're, you're wading through this basement and it's you're almost up to your waist in garbage and stuff. And we we're kind of cowboys back then. I was a fire lieutenant, so I was leading my crew in to do this interior attack in this basement. Couldn't see our hand in front of our face because it was so thick with smoke. And, um, and and we got the call to evacuate. It was getting really hot. Like instant commander saw something, said it wasn't safe for us to be in there, pulled us out. So I had my crew follow the hose line out, and I turned around to follow the hose line out. And I, I tripped and got tangled up and lost the hose line and was completely disoriented. And in this fire, the heat coming down on me, it was getting hotter and hotter. I felt like it was burning. I was just panicking. And, um, you know, I had to calm down, steady my breathing. And obviously, I eventually got out. Uh, I, my radio wouldn't work, so I couldn't call for a mayday, but, uh, but I spent some, a few terrifying minutes in there and all the things that came flooding into my mind at that time were all the ways, uh, all the the ways that I wasn't being an authentic version of myself, that I was just, uh, you know, following this laid out path by culture uh, of get that job, get that promotion, buy that second vehicle, buy that vacation home, have the two vacations a year do you know, get. Keep, keep working your way up like that, collect more and more things, uh, collect more and more promotions, and eventually maybe I'll be fire chief and then you know I'll be blah, blah, blah. And I just regretted all the ways I wasn't showing up the way I should, all the ways I was censoring myself and being silent, all the ways I wasn't fighting for what was right, all the ways I wasn't showing up as the husband I should be or the father I should be. Those regrets hit me hard. And and I came out of that fire, I changed, man. And I said, I'm, I'm not doing things for a dollar anymore. I'm not doing things that make me feel weak or or lesser than I'm not diminishing myself to make society or culture feel better. And that's that mind shift opened up all these doors. Yes, uh, I had to quit my career cash in my retirement. But all of a sudden, I'm working with Neil Young and Daryl Hannah and other Hollywood uh, uh, celebrities are coming up and I'm working with them. And you know, I, I'm getting this opportunity to run for prime minister. Who would have ever guessed that? And and uh, you know, and and all the things I've done now are are related back to knowing that I was going to die. And and that I'm reminded every day. You know, you're going to die. What are you leaving on this table in life? And so, standing up for yourself, standing up for liberty, standing up for your community. Uh, you know, I'm going to die anyways. I might as well die doing that.
1: That's one way to end it. I, those are some words to ponder, Tim. I truly mean that. And, um, I say this all the time because the the world is an interesting place, but somewhere our paths will certainly cross again. And I look forward to it and I appreciate you hopping on and, and being so open, uh, with me today and, and who knows, maybe the next time we'll be in person so we can sit across, uh, you know, uh, from each other and experience it that way. Uh, I'd certainly enjoy that.
0: Yeah, I'd enjoy that too. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.